You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Avram Miller, who served as the Vice President Business Development for Intel Corporation for over a decade, where he was the driving force behind Intel's successful initiative to establish residential broadband internet access. In 1991, he co-founded Intel Capital, which became one of the top corporate venture capital groups in the world. When USA Today profiled Miller in March 1996, it referred to him as a one-man think tank. And in the same article, Brian Roberts, CEO of Comcast, gave Miller much of the credit for the development of the cable modem. On today's show, we talk about what was the mission and goals for Intel Capital? What does it mean to invest in a beautiful house in a bad neighborhood or a bad house in a beautiful neighborhood? How important is a succession plan in a company? If one was born today, how should they go about getting an education? And we talk about Avra Miller's brand new book, The Flight of a Wild Duck. Now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Avram, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. Now, I'm super excited about today's episode. We're releasing it around the exact same time as your new book is hitting the shelves, a book that everyone should pre-order if, or order it right now. But before we go into depth of your new book, I also want to thank James Cape and the rest of the team at the Intel Alumni Network for putting this interview together. This is among a series that we are going to launch to really capture the story of Intel. Now, with that, Avram, can you tell our audience a little bit about your career up until this point? Calling it a career, I don't think <laughs> really explains what happened, and that's why I wrote the book, but we'll get into that later. My first job was as a merchant seaman on a luxury liner, kind of think of the love boat. At the age of 18 in 1963, I was sailing back from San Francisco to Asia back and forth. I did that for a while. Then I was one of the original hippies, uh, anti-war protester, civil rights protester. But as I turned 22, I realized I, I was running out of money, the money I had made as a merchant seaman, and I needed a job. So I just asked all my friends, does anybody know anybody hiring? And one of my friends said, yeah, I know the scientist at the University of California Medical School, Joe Camilla. He's looking for somebody who can help him build some equipment so that he can study the brainwaves and teach people how to control the brainwaves. Do you think you could do it? I said, well, maybe. Because I had always loved electronics. I had played with electronics since I was a child, electronics, physics, chemistry. I was like the ultimate nerd. He introduced me to Joe, and Joe said, told me what he wanted. He says, can you do it? At that time, I was a, the night manager at a pizza store. But I said, I think I can. Will you hire me if I do it? And he said, yeah. And I did it. So we designed equipment to teach people biofeedback, first biofeedback work for brainwaves. And we studied Zen monks, and we got kind of famous. It was the 60s. We were the Walter Cronkite show, Time Magazine, and people like Timothy, Timothy Leary would drop by. And in that process, I learned, I write about it extensively, I learned about digital technology. I learned how to build it. I learned how to build the gates and flip-flops and use transistors and capacitors and, and, and resistors. And then we one day we got a computer 
And I didn't even know what a computer was. And and when everybody left, I, tr- I I opened it up. I had to look inside it and see how it was made. And I could find, I could understand kind of the hardware, but I I didn't understand how it worked because I developed equipment that the way I programmed it was with a kind of like a patch panel, kind of like a switchboard. And I learned that night what software was, and it was the most amazing experience. One of the most amazing experiences of my life it blew me away. The whole potential software. So by the morning, I was a programmer. So I kept doing that, but I was, you know, loving this technology, but really being a scientist and doing scientific experiments. After that, I left the United States and went to Holland, become one of the founders of uh, a great center for cardiovascular and respiratory medicine called the Thorax Center in Rotterdam. And the head of the executive director of that institute, Paul Huguenot, we wanted to integrate computer technology into how people would be cared for. Long story short, I ended up leading that effort, being the head of the computer department at the medical school, that institute of the medical school, and at the hospital. Had an academic career, still never gone to school. Then, so I was like an assistant professor. And then at the age of 29, we moved to Israel, and I became an associate professor. And I talk about this in my book because... I want to give inspiration to people like me. I could never have made it in school, but I was able to make it in the world. And and so in Israel, I was there for five years, and I also started a business. After that, I decided to leave the medical field and start all over again, but in the computer industry. I went to work for Digital Equipment Corporation, and I ran the low-end engineering for digital. One time, I had over a 1,000 engineers working for me. I wasn't an engineer, but that didn't stop me. I want to ask, so it sounds like you've had all these successful careers, but it never sounded like you actually attended the university. Is that true? And how were you able to have these successful careers without attending a university? You know, I think our society evolved in a way that it has a funnel, and the funnel is the school system. And the school system teaches certain things, and it does the opposite. It unteaches some things. For instance, it might teach you algebra, but it doesn't teach you intuition. It might teach you chemistry, but it doesn't, doesn't teach you imagination. But all these things are really important. They are needed. I educated myself. I have a terrific uni- uh, university degree from Avram U. I never had a problem learning my way, but my way wasn't their way. And I don't think that I'm alone in this. I think there is a tremendous number of people who can't go through the school system the way it's constructed. And in some sense, I feel that we waste a lot of talent because of that. You know, Steve Jobs didn't finish school. Bill Gates didn't finish school. I'm not Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, but I use those as examples of people that we all know about. Even Einstein had trouble. It would be good to get over this notion that we you have to get a degree, that that's the key that unlocks a, a great career. It's not true. So if you were so, born today, how would you go about educating yourself? Oh my God, if I was born today, I could do anything <laughs> because it's so much easier than when I was a child. I had to go to libraries and, and read books in the library all day long. And as far as I can remember, there was only one program that I could listen to on the radio. We didn't have a television. One program that I could listen to on the radio about science was on Saturday morning. And the radio I used, I built. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine. But right now, I'm learning every day on the internet. I've taken courses in Yale and other places that I listen to podcasts and I, I, you know, read books. And God, if I could only be a child again, well, I think actually I probably am a child. 
<laughs> but I would, but I'm envious, and I, I'm trying to think of what the potential. I love the fact that I don't love COVID, uh, COVID, but I love the fact that they decided not to use SETs at school. A million people without SETs. I'm hoping that something good will come out of the virus that we will rethink some of the education system. The education system, and you were studying, you started off as a hardware engineer, and then you switched to software. That depth of engineering, do you think this is a problem with engineers today that are too highly focused on one sector throughout their education process and not seeing maybe the whole picture like you had the opportunity to? I don't know if it matters or it doesn't matter. I mean, it matters to me because I love being able to understand it all. But I didn't do it to get ahead. I did it out of love. I loved technology. I loved computers. I couldn't help myself. Okay, I never did anything to get ahead. I just got ahead. It was a result of something else. But I don't know. I mean, it's it, I can't even put myself in the situation now because the complexity of the things that are being developed, you know, you couldn't understand. Like, I could understand my first computer was a PDP-7, 18-bit computer. The memory of that computer was less than a quarter of a photograph of a photo I could take in my eye. I understood all the bits in that computer, and I could program not only assembly language, but if I had to, I could program in binary. That wouldn't be possible. Now we have billions and billions of transistors and circuits and multiple processors running at the same time in the West. I have no idea what it would be like. Now, I can't program now, and I can't build hardware now, so it's too complex. Did it help me in my further in my career, like when I, I was at Intel Capital? I'm sure. Because I could understand when people were telling me about hardware they were building, I had probably a better understanding than most. And when they told me about the software, I had a better understanding than most. I could ask questions and so on. I don't know that it's important, but you know, it's the there's always a challenge between going horizontal and going vertical, going really deep in a very narrow way, or going really broad. You know, and I I think it's important in life to be basically horizontal with some verticals, so that you understand what depth means, even though you can't possibly be deep in everything. And then you learn to respect the people that are. And now let's continue from, we were talking about the point where you had left Israel, came to the U.S. Can you continue there? Yeah, well, I went to work for Digital Equipment Corporation. And at first, I was running hardware engineering. The reason I was in the engineering organization is I was convinced that at a company like Digital, which was the number two computer company at the time, and the leader in many computers, that you had to be an engineer or you had to prove that you were an engineer to get ahead in the organization. They were the engineers were the top people. The founder was an engineer, Ken Olson, and so on. So even though I could have gone into marketing or whatever, I said, I know I've got to prove to people that I actually am technical, especially, you know, maybe because I don't have an engineering degree, I've got to prove it. So I did that. And then I ran the low-end product development, and we, we developed a computer called the Professional, which was, you could think of it as a personal computer, but we, the, we didn't think of it as a personal computer. We thought of it as like a, a workstation for knowledge workers. And it was integrated into the whole ecosystem of Digital Equipment Corporation. And we developed that, and I, I learned a lot in that process because you know, we were developing that at the same time IBM was doing the IBM PC. This is now the 40th anniversary of the IBM PC. We didn't know for the first year about the IBM PC, but and we were building a product that was so over-engineered in a way. 
know, if you look backward, I got a copy, of, I got a, a version of the IBM PC when it first came out in 1981. And I showed it to Ken Olson, who was the founder and CEO. And he, Ken Olson, who was basically had been a power supply designer and mechanical things. First thing he does is he takes out a screwdriver. He was a CEO who walked around with a screwdriver. We started taking it apart. And then he told me, you know, if you ever build anything like this, you wouldn't be here. Like, you know, it's just a pile of junk. He never once asked about the software. Because first, Ken was concerned software came from heaven. You build a good piece of hardware and the software just came. He never asked about that. But I started learning. I realized digital was not going to be successful because the world had changed. The IBM PC, and I do write about this in my book, had changed everything. Changed the whole nature of the computer industry. I decided to leave. At first, I thought I would start a company, a networking company. But I was chicken, I think, a little chicken to start a company of my own. I didn't know how to raise money. And I, I was sort of thinking about it when a company called Franklin Computer, which had just, and it was in its first year, not even eight months, it built a clone of the Apple II. And it was growing faster than Compaq Computer, which actually you know, started that same year. Compaq, I guess, was 82. Franklin was 82, but this, now I'm in 1983, and Franklin is trying to recruit me because they, they're going to go public, they're going to raise a lot of money, and they have no strategy for the future. They don't really have any professional people that have been in the computer industry. And they came to me and they said, you know, we, we'd like to hire you to you know, run this company and to build a team. And I thought, well, and then they offered me a lot of, you know, stock, which I, I didn't have any money. And I thought, well, you know, so I thought this was a way to build my vision for what I thought would be the right kind of computer company for the time. But unfortunately, there had been a lawsuit with Apple and the famous lawsuit called Apple versus Franklin, where because Franklin had copied the operating system from Apple, totally copied it. And Franklin had prevailed in the lower court, but the Apple had appealed. And our, the lawyers of Franklin said to me, don't worry, we can't possibly lose the appeal. This is a slam dunk. We were out talking to doing a roadshow for our public offering. I didn't even go to the appellate hearing, appellate court hearing, but the appellate court were ruled that the lower court should rehear the case because it was one thing that we had asserted that they didn't agree with. And they were right, I think, but is said, you can't copyright the bios. And the appellate court said, nope, you can. So go back and listen and rehear the case. And well, everybody thought we had lost the case. We didn't lose the case, but it didn't matter because we couldn't go public. Our bank wanted their money back. It was a real mess. And it was a very difficult time. And I realized I wasn't the right person to leave the company during that time. And I left because I realized that, that there's times when you when being smart matters. I'm pretty smart. There are times when experience is much more important. And I didn't have the experience for the situation. I was the wrong person. So I left and didn't have a job. I was looking around. One day, Les Fidesz, who was badge number three, uh, Andy Grove was badge number four. It really matter, but these were only people that started Intel. And Les, who I always worked for at Intel, a remarkable man, people don't know much about, but a great person, a great mentor and a great friend. Les calls me up and he says, you know, we're looking to bring people in the company, Intel, that are, you know, a little different than the rest of the people at Intel, you know, and we'd be interested in talking to you. And I I thought, well, I knew Intel, I had a lot of respect for Intel, but I didn't see what, what would I do at Intel. So I said to him, you know, if I ever get to the West Coast, 
I'll give you a call. That's how interested I was. And, and then I was going out on an interview to a computer company out the West Coast, called him. They said, you know, I will be in the West Coast, but the only time I have is breakfast on Saturday morning. And he said, okay, well, I'll meet you. And I met him and I was really struck by him and decided, he decided and I decided that it would be worthwhile exploring my joining Intel. Les had been concerned that Intel was too insular and that it needed different people. And he had an agreement with Gordon Moore, who was the CEO at the time, and Andy Grove, the COO, that he could hire like one, what he called strategic hire, somebody different every year. So I was that person. And I interviewed with a lot of people, including Andy and including Gordon. And long and short of it is I was given, I was offered to join. Now, I was the only one that ever came that way. It was, I was the only strategic hire. There was never another one. In 1998, in the annual report, there are 28 corporate officers. I was one. I was the last one to have joined almost 15 years earlier. So I ended up at Intel and did some things probably not worth talking about that weren't that uh, important. But by 1988, I'm working in, Air, in uh, Oregon at Intel's facilities there. I moved to Santa Clara. I realized even though we said we had no headquarters, maybe we did. I said, I don't care if we don't have a headquarters, but can I sit on the same floor as Andy Grove? And I started doing, I really thought my mission was to help Intel widen this perspective and grow the company beyond just being a, a microprocessor semiconductor company, which it was by 1988. I decided we should really focus in the networking business. And I did a lot of and I thought, you know, we should acquire something. And I tried to acquire Cisco, but it was too expensive for our taste. And I tried to acquire 3Com, and it was too screwed up for our taste. And that's when I told Andy, I said, I understand now. We can't afford anything we want. We don't want anything we can afford. I, I didn't make some smaller acquisitions to try to bring in the talent to develop the networking business. But that didn't work out so well because the uh, Intel culture was so strong, the antibodies would come out and attack the foreign object. That's when I got the idea that, well, maybe we should be just doing minority investments. And I started doing a lot of minority investments. I got to the point that Andy asked Les to basically do that full-time with me to basically, and grow it beyond what I was doing. And we started something called Corporate Business Development in 1991. It was later renamed Intel Capital. Les and I both considered that we are the co-founders of Intel Capital, and Intel Capital became very successful, as you probably know. And I did that for from 91 to, well, I did it really starting in 88 to uh, 99 when I left Intel. Before we do your career after Intel, let's go back because there's a lot of things that you touched on that I think are very interesting points that I'd like to dive a little deeper on. The first one is the culture of Intel. How do you remember the company culture at that time when you were there? Intel was an execution machine. It was really good at doing something. And one of the reasons I got attracted to Intel is I had come to realize through my time at digital equipment particularly that a great strategy executed poorly looks like a lousy strategy. <laughs> I had this fantasy that I'm really strategic and I'm an out-of-box thinker and I can kind of figure out these things and then I can convince Intel to do them, and they're going to do them, and they're going to do them, you know, execute just like they were doing. Everything I saw them do was perfect execution. And that came a lot from Andy. 
I am fond of saying, I believe this very much, is one of the strongest things I feel and believe, that there are four ingredients to make for a successful business. The first thing is you have to have an opportunity. And you can't make opportunities. You can discover them. You can see them. You can recognize them. And if you see them and recognize them before other people, that gives you a really good head start. But it's like surfboard riding. If you know how to surfboard riding, uh, how to surf, and you have a surfboard, you still have to go to a beach that has waves. You cannot make a wave. So I believe first in the in the opportunity. The second is the strategy. You know, how are you going to go about pursuing this opportunity? And then tell develop the strategy for pursuing the PC. But then they couldn't evolve with it. They got kind of stuck with it. But anyway, there were once they got the strategy. Uh, along with Microsoft, there's a strategy for, you know, how do we transfer all the profit to us? They executed it rather flawlessly. Pretty amazing. But and the reason I bring this up is that when Intel started, it had a, it recognized an opportunity. The opportunity was semiconductor technology and oppor- applied to memory. That was Bob Noyes that had that insight. And Bob was also the person that recognized the, poss- the potential of the personal computer. He was the one that green-lighted the first, the four, uh, 4004, the first microprocessor that was done by Intel and done, period, I guess. Bob was a visionary. And Gordon was really good as a strategist. You know, people don't, unless you knew Gordon, because Gordon was not very, it was a pretty introverted guy. Bob was not. Unless you knew Gordon, you wouldn't really understand how strategic this person was, how he thought. But he was amazing. And Andy was the person to execute. And if you, and I said there are four things. If you have a, an opportunity, you have a strategy to pursue that opportunity and you execute it brilliantly, the fourth thing is you get a reward. And that's what happened at Intel. They recognized the, uh, the microprocessor when they came along. They didn't create the micro, they didn't create the opportunity. They just recognized the opportunity. The opportunity was created kind of by accident by IBM when they did the IBM PC and made it open. And then went to Intel, Microsoft, but they recognized the opportunity. They had developed the strategy for pursuing the opportunity. And they executed the strategy brilliantly. To the point that at one time Intel was the most valuable company in the world. But by the time Bob was gone and Gordon was gone, they were left with, I would say, the executioner in chief. I mean, Andy was such a great executioner. That was his strength. And so as the world changed, Intel had trouble changing. And uh, the culture that was so good at execution was a culture of honesty, of debate, of being able to challenge people, knowing there's a difference between trying and doing, achieving, not being taking comfort in the fact that you tried. And even there was a good reason why you failed, it didn't matter, you failed. There was a lot of lessons I learned at Intel that I tried to apply and other things. But we'll have to see if Intel can get his mojo back, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because of, Intel's in trouble now because it actually was bad at execution. I have to ask with that, so your time at Intel, when you started Intel Capital, what was that conversation like? What were the expected outcomes? What were the metrics that you were being judged by if it was a success or not? I mean, it sounds like everything was execution. It sounds like everything was yes or no. What was it for you? What were you being judged by for success or not? In Intel Capital? You know, when we first started, the concept was when we first started, there was a lot of activity, but there was some activity that had to do with the business units uh, that were in place. 
And sometimes they wanted to make an investment or work with a company, and there was some relationship they wanted, but they didn't know how to do it. So I think the first expectation was we would develop the skills to do this flawlessly. That is, we would bring up the execution level to the standards of Intel in doing minority investments. And those are very high standards. That was the first thing, was you have to do this without making a mess. You have to do this flawlessly. You have a very professional. And I think that was really the reason that Andy asked Les to come in, because he didn't feel that way about me. I had only been there by the time, what, four years? He had worked with Les, not only from the beginning of Intel, but Fairchild before that. There was a great trust between the two of them. And Andy, I think Les felt like this was a really important area because, remember, he hired me because he wanted to bring in the outside world. And this was a good way to connect to the outside world. And we had developed the idea, you know, this is probably the best way we can do it because if we buy companies, the Intel organization is going to basically stifle these companies. They won't be able to do that if we just have a minority position in the company. And okay, so that was the first thing. The second thing, the most important thing, I think, in the beginning was, can you get control of this process? This is probably something we need to do or we're doing. Let's do it really well. But then Les and I, Les, I think, went to the board and he asked for $50 million to do my investments. And he got, you know, got that and we started doing it. But then we worked together to try to think, how should we do this really well? What are we, what's our objective here? And we decided that we had three objectives. The first was to provide strategic insight to the company. By working with companies who were further out and in different businesses, we would have a lens on the world that Intel wouldn't have normally in doing core business. The second was, could we do things that would expand the business of the company, that it grow the market for the businesses that we already had? And the third thing was, could we get a good return on the investment? And so those were the three things. And we knew that getting a good return on the investment was a requirement because if we didn't get it, they wouldn't let us do it. And if we did make money, they would leave us alone. So that was uh, you know, a critical part of it. We succeeded extremely well in the second two things. That is, expanding the business for the company. And an example of that is I played a major role in the establishment of res- residential broadband. I used Intel's capabilities an investment in whatever to really turbocharge cable modems and DSL and the cable and the broadband system that we have today. Intel played a leadership role in that, and I was the guy driving that out of Intel Capital. That really grew the market for home computers. That was a central part of the business. But there were other areas that I wasn't particularly involved in, but enterprise computing, other things. So that was pretty good. What exceeded our expectations by a large amount was the financial return we got. When I left in 1999, we had uh, the portfolios worth about $8 billion. I think it got up to about $13 billion. And uh, we had already taken lick. We had already realized $3 billion. And in 1999, we might have been, we were certainly the largest corporate venture fund by a long shot, but we may have been the largest, one of the largest venture funds in the world. In retrospect, I understand why we were so successful. It wasn't our objective. And the value we brought to the company by growing the business, like say cable motive or whatever, way far out exceeded the value we brought in from the investments. So that, and that's really what it's you know, about when you have a corporate venture group, it should not be financially driven. It should maybe pay its way, but it's a strategic function. Past interviews, I remember hearing a quote 
a beautiful house in a bad neighborhood or a bad house in a beautiful neighborhood when it comes to investing in a company. What does this mean? Can you talk about that for the investment strategy? The strategy that I evolved, which was came from my thinking the way I thought of myself, my self-perception. So remember I said I thought of myself as a strategist. Very, you know, I'm a very intuitive person. And I'm I'm fond of saying intuition is when you know something but you don't know why you know it. But it was really counter to the Intel culture because in Intel you had to know why you knew it or you didn't know it. But what I wanted I thought was if I can recognize, if I have the ability to recognize where things are going to happen early, where they're going to take off and invest in properties in that space, then, and I, and I invest in a number of them, some of them are, are going to do re- extremely well. Some are going to do extremely well. So the way I worked, and I had an organization, you know, I didn't do everything by myself. You know, I had managers working for me in different segments, and they had people working for them. And, you know, we were a big organization. I would try to discover on my own. I didn't have anybody researching this for me. This was me. I would try to figure out where are the next things going to be. So that was like the neighborhood. And then I would try to find businesses in that neighborhood. And I had two objectives, probably. One was, you know, I want to make an investment in this neighborhood. And I think that that I have a better chance of making money if I invest in a good neighborhood than a bad neighborhood. And by the way, like a bad neighborhood, what's a bad neighborhood? A bad neighborhood right now would be, I think, being... Others will argue with me, but I think a bad neighborhood generally is a semiconductor industry. And and so I would try, and then, but what was really important to me is that I tried to develop in my mind, what is the ecosystem of this this thing? What is the structure of companies? Because companies depend on companies, depend on on companies, right? If you have application software, you have an operating system, you have a computer. If you have a computer, you have memory chips, disks, and so on. You know, you have an, uh, an architecture. The things at the bottom have to come before the things in the top. And so I felt like the guy, so if I invest on the bottom, people in the bottom, the CEOs and others at the bottom, they will be my guides to the next set of company. They will tell me who's above them that they think is good and introduce me. And so I developed this way of thinking of this and I trained my people in this way of thinking, which I hope they continue to practice. I think they're doing pretty well. So maybe they are practicing. Now, other people will say, you know, they, they only care about a good house. This is like saying, you know, I invest in the management team. And there are many venture capitalists that say they invest in the management. And a good management team, that's what I'm looking for. And that was not my feeling. I mean, obviously, a bad management team is not great. But, you know, like right now, I'm an investor in, and involved in a company in Israel. And I think it's going to be a great company. It's basically a social media company dealing with issues that are, affect people's health, like loneliness. And I got involved in the company because I thought the space and what they wanted to do. So the opportunity and their strategy, and the strategy was okay. The opportunity was really attracted me. Today, there's only one person in the company that was there when we started, the CEO. And the board's changed. Everything's changed over time. So was I investing in, in the management team? No. But our people would argue with me. I mean, believe me, if you had a, a bunch of venture capitalists on this call, they would all disagree with me. I do have success to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to reinforce my story. Avram, to talk more about your investment thesis there, when you're looking at a company, are you looking for incremental or revolutionary change in a product? Well, first of all, I, I would start with a product. And some companies, a product is just a piece of what a company is about. In fact, Bill Davidow, who was the first really 
great marketing person, I, I would think, in inside Intel. And he's written some books about this. He, he, he would say the device is not the product, meaning the device being like a microprocessor. The product is everything that the company does. But a lot of companies are formed because they see an opportunity and it requires what they, they think is a, re a revolutionary product, especially if they're driven by engineers. They decide to, that the first product is really what should have been the first, fourth generation product. Yeah. And they take everything and they try to do everything. Now, the problem with that is if you were able to achieve it, you know, it'd be fantastic, but you won't. You'll fail because one little thing will be, will be a failure. The guy who understood this the, the best, although he didn't understand it in the beginning, but he grew into it, was Steve Jobs. And you can see how incremental Apple works. And and so, so Steve Jobs became a, an, an incrementalist, not a revolutionary. Even though you might think of Steve Jobs as being revolutionary, no, he was incrementalist. And I think the successful companies, by and large, if we were to look at them, they were all incrementalists. So in the 90s, we had all these people doing personal digital assistants, you know, the Newton, General Magic, Go Computer, all these things. You know, they were total rev revolutionary products. They all failed. In watching that, I think that's where I really came to to understand the danger. Because also, I think I try. I didn't really what I did. A digital wasn't really revolutionary, but still, I we took on too much. And the taking on too much is really comes from being a technologist or an engineer. You know, you I am one too, and I see things, and they seem like closer than they really are. You know, technology is like is an S curve. You know, and but we don't see it as an S-curve. You know, we see it as, you know, linear. We know we can get there. And so you have to be very cautious as an investor and as a CEO that you don't let the engineering organization give you the time frame. Because when you do that, then what happens is you see companies and they say, oh, we're going to have the product released in another 12, uh, 12 months. We better start ramping up our manufacturing. We better start ramping up our marketing. Only to fire all those people when the product slips and slips and slips and you go through all your money. These companies, that product may have not made it. There was another quote I remember while I was reading your book that said, looking at the graveyard of companies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's part of my, my thesis about how, how to be an investor. So what happens is that you go, like a lot of companies, let's take, you remember WebVan? Yeah, well, WebVan was going to be an idea that we, you know, we were going to have delivery of groceries. Well, it was an amazing idea, and then the company totally failed. And then for a long time, if you said anything about groceries or whatever, people would, you know, point at WebVan or Pets.com, which my friend Julie Wainwright, who's now extremely successful because she's the founder of Real, the Real Real, and it's an amazing success story. I'm going to see her in a couple of weeks. I'm so proud of her. Uh, she's a great example of an entrepreneur who tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed and then blew it out of the park. I mean, unicorn out of the park. And But everybody, pets.com, and then you could never talk about pets. So what happens is people get a bad taste in their mouth. And so what you need to do is to say, well, the reasons people always try these things is they saw a need, but they underestimated the difficulty. So they saw an opportunity. So when I think about opportunities, I think, because I'm not the only person who can see an opportunity, well, let's look at all the companies that failed, because I bet those, those were all opportunities. Many of them were great opportunities. And people will not go back to them for a while because of the failures. The failures kind of 
poison the opportunity for a while. You know, so look at the big failures and you will see tomorrow's successes. In your career path, you've left yeah. Intel, you're moving on. Yeah. Another yeah. question about Intel, just quickly, how important is a succession plan in a company? Because that's one area that people say that Intel may not have had. No, Intel failed. Intel failed at the succession, big time. Andy Grove failed at succession. And every CEO after Andy was a step down. Nobody, I don't think anybody rationally could argue with that, what I'm saying. I think that's recognized now, finally. And we brought in Pat, Pat Gelsinger. And Andy, the CEO's job has to be one of the, the most important thing, eventually has to be a successor. And Bill Gates failed at that bomber. And we'll definitely Intel failed. But it's difficult. So in Intel, the tradition was that the chief operating officer would grow into being the CEO. And people would say, well, Andy Grove, he did a good job of that. Yes and no, but because Andy failed to develop a new strategy for, for the company, he stayed on the, he was stuck on the strategy. He didn't develop the people that had the strategic insight. And Craig, who was an excellent manufacturing person, he was the guy who was responsible for Intel becoming a world-class manufacturer, didn't really have a, a sense of strategy. He was also an execution guy, just in a different domain. And then Paul Alini was a finance guy. And I think that the board of a company should ensure that the CEO has a, a succession plan. And if they don't have a succession plan, the board should replace the CEO. Now, if you had an opportunity right now to sit down with the current CEO, is there any advice or suggestions that you would say to him? Well, first of all, I, I would say, hey, Pat, you really decided to take something on here. Uh, you know, you didn't have to do this. And so I congratulate you for wanting and feeling that you have some obligation to Intel. He was there 30 years. And also believing in yourself so much that you think you can fix this company. So I have a great deal of respect for Pat. And I know Pat. Uh, you know, we were friendly in the old days. I have a lot of respect for him. Can he, what should he do? Well, he's got two challenges. One challenge is how do you write the ship? Now, how do you fix Intel currently? And I think I'm sure that's what he's primarily focused on. And the second thing is, how do you make sure that you don't have repeat performance? How do you continue to evolve and develop? So my advice to Pat would be set up a board of advisors with a chair and get reach outside the company with, with more of the time frame being in the, in the next five or even 10 years. Because if you succeed at writing the Intel, so what? I mean, you what are you doing this for? You know, you want to perpetuate the company and things are going to continue to change. And it's very hard to be a large company and manage these changes. You know, what happened to Intel is not unusual. It happens to all. Almost every large company fails to make the change and evolve. The other thing I would say to Pat is forget about the stock price. It doesn't matter. Does Intel need to sell stock? No. Don't sell stock. Don't buy stock. Don't look at the stock market. Forget about it. Look at Jeff Bezos and how he built, who I think is one of the greatest. I don't really like him, but he's one of the greatest CEOs in technology. Look what he did. 
Okay, but he never gave a damn about the stock price until recently when he wanted to go into outer space. He probably cared, but but in, for years and years he never cared about. It. So I think it's a trap to care about the stock price when you're not even selling stock. Why do you care? Do you think it's a problem with companies if they start to think and care too much about the stock price? Well, they start to care about it because their own compensation is tied up with it, and along with compensation comes the ego. Like this guy's richer than me, I want to be richer than him. Like, you know, he's got a plane, I got to have a plane. But, but I'm the CEO of a company worth a billion, a trillion dollars. Well, he, you know, he is the CEO of a company worth, you know, half a trillion dollars. I'm twice the man he is. Uh, you know, so and the, the employees end up being motivated by you know stock and whatever. But it's a dangerous thing. Well, because what happens is after your stock price collapses for some reason or other. People's stock is are the below water. You can't attract, can't hold the people, and so on. You've got to. It makes for a lot of bad decisions watching the stock price, especially you know in this world which we do quarterly reports. Why in the hell are we doing quarterly reports? Who needs to know? Why do we do that? I don't remember the name. Like uh, SEC probably requires all this, but why? Why not just disclose any material changes in the company? I can understand that. Do it once a year. Have some. So much time and so much focus is on the quarter. And I once I learned this when I was at Digital. I once went to the CFO of the company, and I said, "I have two business plans here. I showed him just the financials. I said, which one would you? What do you think about this? Which one would you do? Would you do both of them? I would do this one, but I wouldn't do this one. And I said, why? Uh, he was telling me, you know, I don't like this numbers and whatever. I said, they're the same plan, just shifted in time. <laughs> and and do not ever hire a CEO, a CFO, ex-CFO as your CEO. And if you are an investor in a company that has a CFO now as the CEO, sell your stock. <laughs> we'll, we'll put a little asterisk to that in the show notes there for, for advice. <laughs> Avram, I, I got to ask also your book. Why yeah. write a book right now? And also the name of the book. How'd you come up with that name? Well, when I started, uh, first of all, I answer the question, first question first. You know, I lived this kind of interesting life, unique life. I was lucky in that way. People, when they know about my life, they would say, oh, you should write a book, you know, uh, about it. But, you know, there were a lot of things I learned uh, along the way. And also, I really wanted to be an inspiration for people that were like me. They couldn't make it. And I wanted to help those people and the parents of those people. Many times parents have asked me to help, you know, what do I do with my kid? You know, and I always tell them, love them without judgment, <laughs> you know, which is the most important thing a parent can do. But I had an interesting life, and particularly, I think, in the technology world, I was kind of ended up in the room where a lot of the decisions were made. And I know a lot of things and a lot of history, and I did a lot of research in writing this book, thousands of documents and uh, it's almost 100 interviews. And all these things would go with me. You know, I'm 76. I'm pretty good health, but you just, you know, you don't know. And I probably should have written this book earlier, but I didn't. I wrote a blog for 16 years to develop my skills as a writer. So I felt like I needed to share the stories. I write a lot about, for instance, the evolution of broadband, because the early state development of that is not known historically. And a lot of people were involved in that that needed to get credit for their contributions. I hope I gave them credit for it. And yeah, I guess I have grandchildren who, who knows, it's, you know, it's, it's many reasons, but it was really enjoyable because I learned so much. 
And I didn't think it would change me, but it did. It changed my, my view. Looking backwards is different than looking forward. And when I say in my book here, I say, you know, you start off with dreams and you end up with memories. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I, I wanted to share those memories. I hope people will enjoy it and they should go to the website, which is wild. Well, they go to Amazon, put my name and they'll find it too, but wildduckflight.com. It's available for pre-order right now. And it, first of September it will be. So maybe when people are hearing this, it, they can just order it, buy it. And I hope they do. Avram, was there anything that was left out of the book or any additional information that maybe our listeners will be able to find out about extra content or that that you wished was in the book? Well, first of all, there are things in the book we didn't t- to talk about that might be useful to some people. For and But there were things I left out because I didn't, but the book was already 360 pages. And on the website, I have a place for essays. So I'm taking the outtakes of the book. And like I talked about digital digital personal assistance. I talk about that, what, what happened there, why it didn't succeed. You know, I wrote something about that, the BNS. But I also have about 100 lessons, and each lesson is one page. I was going to put them originally in the book, but I just had to finish the book. So I have sketched out the 100 lessons. I'm going to start to write them, and then I'll publish them on the website. And you can subscribe on the website to the lessons or to the essays or to the essays and the lessons if you want to do both. And the essays, I think, will be... Uh, and they're not about me. They're they're about things I and I think they can be helpful because I've used them a lot over the years. When I, I've advised a lot of early stage companies since I left Intel, and I always find myself saying the same thing. <laughs> so I decided to, now when people ask me for help, I could say, "Geez, you know." For a while, it's just saying, "I'm busy. I'm writing a book." Now I have to say, well, "I wrote a book here. You know, why don't you get a copy and then talk to me about it?" And so because they probably won't buy the book and they won't talk to me about it. All right. And Avram, I want to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. I've learned a lot. This has been a a great interview. I loved reading your book. I spent the whole weekend reading it. And I just want to thank James and everyone at the Intel Alumni Network for putting this together. And for all our listeners out there, if you enjoyed this episode, please go on iTunes and give us a five-star review. And check us out on the SiliconValleyPodcast.com. And we're going to have all the information on wildduckflight.com and that in the show notes for this episode. And with that, Avram, is there any last words or anything that you'd like to leave our listeners? Yeah. The other thing I would say is I hope you have fun reading my book. It's not that serious. (laughs) He's got a lot of good stories there. And in the book, you'll you'll find out. Avram got to meet some celebrities there. I won't go into details, but uh, he's got a cool (laughs) nickname and a a lot of good stuff. So, (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, Look, uh, thank you very much for uh, this interview. And I've enjoyed the interview. I enjoyed talking to you before. And I will will keep in touch and uh, listen to the other podcasts. And I wish you success. Thank you, Avram. All right. And with that, we conclude this episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.